Well, dear friends, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be with you, especially in this historic building before the move. And I'm very thankful to Paul for the invitation to come here. And Shiona, as you know, are greatly loved on at least three continents. And he came to our staff, as you've heard, and brought great blessing to us. And I think I gave great trouble to him, and he's repaid me by giving me Colossians 3, 5 and following this morning. And uh, it's not easy for you to have a strange man come to your church with a strange accent, and it's not easy for me with your strange incomprehensible accents either, or this white stuff that is falling out of the sky. It's all, all new. But... Um, We have been prayed for, so let's um, open Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 on page 1184. Some of you may know the name Rico Tice, and he was asked by a non-Christian friend if anything exciting was happening at his church, and he said, yes, we're reading the Bible and we're praying. And the non-Christian friend said, no, I wanted to ask if anything exciting was happening at your church, and he said... Yes, we're reading the Bible and we're praying. And that's a great reply because there is no more wonderful voice to hear than the voice of God's word. And there is no more wonderful ear to speak to than the ear of God as we've done this morning. And I've been given Colossians 3, 5 to 11. And because I've landed in the middle of a series, I want to try and just uh, describe the danger that Paul the Apostle is writing to. Uh, that he is writing to deal with. And I haven't heard the sermons leading up to now, but the heresy which has invaded the Colossian church, I'm going to describe as bucket theology. In other words, that uh, you people are receptacles or buckets and you're looking up to God and you're waiting for blessings that haven't come. And the heretics who've come in are claiming to be fuller than you are because they've practiced certain rituals or rules or traditions which have made them fuller than you. And so the problem is a kind of a spiritual one-upmanship, which always dishonors Christ and always splits the fellowship into the sort of the A-grade and the B-grade, the superior and the inferior. Now, the true theology of Paul is what I will call sapling theology, or very much like your picture of the series, the kind of plant in Christ, where God has taken people and planted them in Christ, and so they are like small trees in the botanical gardens, or even limbs in the body, to use another illustration in Colossians. And so you don't need to be looking up like a bucket waiting for blessings, rather because you have been planted in Christ. You have the great privilege of growing down into him and finding that all the riches and the resources and the nutrients are in him. That's why Paul says in chapter 1, he's rejoicing to hear that fruit is evident in the Colossian Christians. And that's why he says in chapter 2, he wants them to go on living in Christ, planted as they are. Now, how did the Colossian Christians begin the Christian life? We're told in chapter 1 they they heard the news of Christ and then they responded to Christ and now they live in Christ, they're growing like Christ and they're waiting for Christ. And the Apostle Paul will not tolerate a heresy which ruins the Christians. And that's why he's written this letter. Nor will he tolerate 
behaviour that ruins the Christian life. And that's where we come to in chapter 3. As you will have heard last week, you've been brought to new life, raised with Christ. You've been spiritually resurrected, one day to be physically resurrected. And he says, I want you to focus on this new spiritual life which has come to you, the things above. And the flip side of this, he says, in the verses we have this morning, is that he wants the believers to get rid of the things which wreck your faith and wreck your joy and wreck your peace and wreck your soul. Now, it is not easy for Christian people to think in terms of their relationship with Christ because we keep responding to the eyes and things we see and the ears and the things we hear and the mind and the things we think and the things that are said to us. But we need to work on grasping the privilege of union with Christ It's a very slow lesson and I noticed that new books are being written on this subject to help Christians get to grips with what it means to be in union with Christ. You think, for example, of Noah in the ark, that he has to deliberately put his mind away from the storm outside and the smell inside and he has to put his mind on the privilege of the ark, which is taking him from one shore to the next. Or think of the commoner who marries a prince And she has to put her mind away from her humble background and from her inexperience in royal circles and put her mind on the prince who's chosen her. And so it is that the Christian has to focus not on the feelings that we have or the opinions which are around us, but on what God actually says about being new in Christ. And so our seven verses, Colossians 3... 5 to 11, they teach us two main things. Here are my two points. Those with new life should guard it. Those with new life should guard it. And secondly, those with new fellowship should guard it. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed which is idolatry because of these the wrath of God is coming you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these anger rage malice slander filthy language from your lips do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So let's think about those two points for a few minutes this morning. The first is those with new life should guard it. Uh, Paul says in chapter 3 verse 1, You've been raised to new life, put to death. You have new life, kill off the earthly nature. This will seem very depressing to some of you here this morning who've come with very heavy hearts, but I hope you won't think of this as being very depressing because God is calling on you and me to take some drastic action against the things which poison your soul 
So we know that the non-Christian has got an old nature and not a new nature. The Christian has an old and a new nature. And they're in tension. And Paul says you're not to let the old nature run the show of your life anymore because you've got a new nature, you've got a new life. And since you have new life, he's saying, don't let the old life choke the new because you are profoundly different. You may remember that the false teachers in chapter 2 have very superficial ideas of how to make progress in the Christian life. They say, look, here are some traditions for you. Here's some rules. Here's some rituals. But those things will not really check sinfulness. And I imagine you will know in Scottish Baptist church circles, there's plenty of room for traditions, rituals, and rules. But they won't change the heart. The Christian, says Paul, has been deeply changed. Christ has died to bring you new life. It's eternal life. And he is at work in you to give you wisdom and strength so that you can say no to old sins. Now, a few weeks ago, I was speaking at a men's dinner in Sydney. And just before I spoke, two men got up to give their testimonies. And they were very brave testimonies indeed. The first was a 24-year-old man. And he got up and he said that pornography had, had wrecked his life and wrecked his marriage. His wife had left him. And he was now 24 years old, divorced, and he was spending as much time as he could urging men and women not to let pornography kill their lives also. It was a very honest and sobering moment for a men's dinner, I tell you. It kind of broke the ice and gave permission on being able to talk honestly. And the other man was in his 50s and he spoke for a number of minutes about how greed and accumulation had killed his life and wrecked his home and that Christ had helped him out and brought him into a good fight. And again, it was a great piece of honesty to have these two men identify and articulate the battle of these two great sins, which are basically what we find in chapter 3, verse 5, sex and money. In chapter 3, verse 5, there's a a few words that are linked to this main immorality word. And then there is greed. And you may think to yourself, you know, here we are, we're in church. And once again, some guy who has a weird life is coming along and is wanting to sort of bash all pleasure out of our lives. But the Apostle Paul says, these are things which make lousy masters. They, they cause you to be restless. They do expensive damage in the short term and massive damage in the long term. You'll never be satisfied if you decide that sex or money will be your masters. They will consume you. They'll, they'll corrode you. Then they'll destroy you. And then they'll laugh. I don't really expect a non-Christian to understand this because for the non-Christian there is no joy in Christ and so the non-Christian thinks, well, what else is there? Sex and money seem to be about the best things around. But I want to say again that in the short term you won't find any peace or joy with these. You, You certainly won't find any hope long term. And Paul says in the long term, verse 6, judgment is real. And it is coming to those who laugh at God's word and think that they can turn their back on him. Now the Christian knows that the sinful nature is very powerful. There's none of us who pretend to be great at these things. That's why we've confessed our sins. The Apostle Paul says in these verses, don't feed your sinful nature. Don't try to be friendly with it. 
don't try and reach a compromise, get the axe out and put it to death. And the key word, as I say in the list, is sexual immorality. This is kind of taking the fire of sex, which is a gift from God, which works wonderfully in the fireplace of husband and wife marriage, and then trying to take that fire outside the fireplace. And if you think it can be taken out of the fireplace and indulged safely elsewhere, just watch and see. You'll find that it can't. It will put a gulf between you and Christ, and it is a terrible master. There will be some short-term excitement with sex and greed, but there will be no short-term fellowship with Christ, and things will get darker. And the only hope you have is that God will give you that wonderful gift of repenting, And then he will bring you home to himself and wonderfully forgive you and free you again. There's no man in Australia who will permit a black snake to enter the home, especially not the bedroom of the children. And the apostle says that a Christian should act quickly when sin enters the mind or the life. You must learn to guard your new life, says Paul. And so wise Christians learn to be ruthless. Especially the ones that grip your heart and drive you into ungodliness. And sex and greed are very good at doing this. Of course we may fall and we may fail. But we're not to settle down with these sins. We can't pretend that we're going to get on with them. And for those of you who have new life in Christ, and I suspect that's most of you here this morning, learn to guard your life. Because those sins of corrosion and corruption will play a game with you, unsettling you in the short term, great damage in the long term. And I don't think I would be a faithful uh, pastor this morning if I didn't say that if there are those here this morning who have some secret sin which you're trying to hold on to while you walk with Christ, or some secret relationship which you're trying to keep while keeping up church membership. You need to be mature, you need to be wise, you need to be courageous, and you need to be decisive and put an end to it. That's what Paul says here in chapter 3. You need to do it for God's honour. You need to do it for the church's fellowship. You need to do it for your own witness to non-Christians and you need to do it for your own prayer life and for your soul. And he will help you. He will give you the grace and the strength and the joy of fighting the good fight. I want you to notice as we consider this that all Christians are being addressed here. Every single one of us. Every single Christian struggles with certain sins. We all need to support one another. We all need to agree together that this is a battle. And every Christian is to be a repentant Christian. That's what we expect of one another when we come, that we will together repent. And then we will joy, be joyful in the forgiveness that Christ gives to us. And it is a nonsense, I may say today, to try and attach something that Jesus calls a sin to the Christian life. As if I can put my arm in the arm of a sin and my arm in the arm of Jesus and walk happily 
down the road together. It is more foolish to think like that than it is to try and bring a third party into a marriage. And if Jesus says that activity, activity like greed or adultery or homosexuality is a sin, then every real Christian will seek to put that activity to death. We can't decide that we will include it in our Christianity. We cannot use sentimental love language to say it's all okay. The privilege of knowing Christ is immeasurable. And we will love people if we say to the non-Christian, don't let anything keep you from Jesus. And we'll love believers if we say, don't let anything come between you and Jesus. That's how we'll love people. And in a thousand years from now, that's what will really matter. So Paul says those with new life should guard it. Now the second thing he says more briefly is that those with new fellowship should guard the fellowship. Kathy and I were walking around Edinburgh yesterday and I noticed that it is possible to hire a kilt for £62. It seems expensive to me. And of course it would be unbiblical to wear a kilt because the Bible says in Psalm 147 that God does not delight in the legs of a man. <laughs> but if I, if I did become a Scotsman and I had the clothes to match, I hope you would see the change in my behaviour. And in chapter 3 verses 9 and 10... Not only is the Christian new inside, says Paul, but the Christian is also meant to be new outside. In fact, says Paul, the Christian has put off an old life and has put on a new life, like removing an old uniform and put on a new life, which is like putting on a new uniform. And this is pretty obvious when you think about it. I remember when I became a Christian back in 1970 and my language changed. And a relationship stopped because the inward life was changing the outward life. It didn't lead me to perfection. It led me to change. And so, says Paul, because your non-Christian uniform is past and your Christian uniform has begun, your new inside, you're meant to be new outside as well, and because you're part of the Christian fellowship, look at chapter 3, verse 11, where God has removed all barriers, so nationality, class, skin, they don't matter at all. But Christ lives in each one of his people, chapter 3, verse 11, and each one belongs to Christ. Therefore, look at verse 8, don't create barriers with your words. Don't use angry words. Don't use dishonest words. Don't use slanderous words. Put away the words, says the Apostle Paul, that create friction and tension. So notice what he said in these verses we've looked at this morning. Kill what poisons your soul and put away what wrecks your fellowship. That's the big picture of Colossians 3, 1 to 11, or at least 5 to 11. So Jesus has ended your old life. You've got a new eternal life. Therefore, says Paul, guard it by killing the killers in your life. And Jesus has ended your lonely life. You now have new Christian fellowship. So Paul says, guard it by removing the barriers. 
Now, friends, we mustn't be surprised that churches have tensions. I don't want you to think that uh, Paul Rees has said anything to me about this. He's not said one word to me, except that he loves being here. But just in case there has ever been a tension in the church, let me say we shouldn't be surprised that churches have tensions because we're very sinful people. We really should be amazed that anything goes right in churches. And it's easy to get heated because we invest such weight in our discussions. You know, the carpet in the new room must be green. If the carpet is not green, it will look terrible. If the carpet looks terrible, young people won't come. They won't hear the gospel. They will perish everlastingly (laughs) unless the carpet is green. We we just invest, don't we, so, so weightily in these issues. Now, God is very wise... He says, take the axe to your sinful passions and close the mouth on divisive words. You may feel that this is all too hard for you, but remember from chapter 1 the way God sees you. He sees you as holy and without blemish because of Jesus. And remember from chapter 1 that he is at work in you to strengthen you with all power So what he's asked us to do, he will help us to do. It's possible for me as I leave this building in the power of Christ to turn away from those things that will kill my soul and to put away the words that will wreck the fellowship. And it's possible for you to do the same. And if we put this conduct into place, it will affect our character. The character in many ways follows the conduct as the conduct teaches the character. Now I'm aware of the great spiritual battle in Scotland and in England and in Australia and in Canada for godly, strong Bible churches. And our churches have never needed more to take seriously God's word in the area of holiness and in the area of fellowship. And I think these verses that we have here in 3, 5 to 11 are a very powerful weapon. And they must be taken seriously if we're to have the effect for God's glory on a dark world, which is so important. And we're to do this not just so that we'll be peaceful and happy ourselves, or even so that we'll have good fellowship and happy fellowship, although we may. But we're we're to do it as the Apostle Paul is so concerned in chapter 1 for the witness of the church to the world. The world is not going to know anything about truth and love unless we play a good part. And I trust the Lord will help you having new life to guard the life and having new fellowship to guard the fellowship. Let's pray.